I'm Greg Johnson. Welcome to Countercurrents Radio. We're doing something new today. This is the first of the Countercurrents Book Club. We're going to try on the first Saturday of each month. I know this isn't the first Saturday of January, but normally on the first Saturday of each month, we will have a book club podcast. Uh, we've already put the schedule out for most of them this year. And the goal is simply to acknowledge the fact and build on the fact that we are a print publisher and we would like to encourage people to buy and read our books. And the one way to do that is simply to discuss them. And the format will be me as host plus a panel. Right now, we have three panelists and I would like to bring them on and introduce them one after the other. First, James O'Meara. James, welcome. Welcome to you. And second is Catherine S. Catherine, are you there? Yes, glad to be here. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Great. And finally, Margot Metroland. Margot has actually written a review of the book of the week, of the hour, and that's Jonathan Bowden's The Culture Thug. So, Margot, welcome. Thank you very much. Hi, everybody. Well, it's great to have you here. I hope this works. We've got a great book. We've got a great panel. So why wouldn't it? Let's just let's just begin. Folks, if you have questions or comments about the book, The Culture Thug by Jonathan Bowden, or frankly, anything else that comes to mind, you can do, do those with a super chat. And the way to send super chats is to look at the bottom of the screen where it says entropy. You can go to entropystream.live forward slash countercurrents, no hyphen. Hit the green button and leave a chat. We're not streaming there, but we can take your donations. And Entropy is one of the few places on the web, the only place for a long time, that stood up for free speech and allowed people to send money to us using credit cards. So we're very grateful to them. You could also send tips through Odyssey. And if you'd like to send us those little tokens, those diamonds, lemons, ninjets, ninjaginis, whatever, at DLive, we take those gratefully as well. So without further ado, I want to begin with Margot. Actually, let me say a bit about how this book came about because there's some context that needs to be put in place. If you've read it, you've noticed that it's something of a miscellany. It consists of some long transcripts and some short pieces, all of them published before at Countercurrents. And this is the fifth collection of Bowden's work that I brought out at Countercurrents. And the first four were somewhat more thematic. The first one was called Pulp Fascism, and it dealt with basically popular culture and rightist themes in popular culture. Then I did Western Civilization Bites Back, which dealt with moral issues generally about Western civilization and its malaise. After that, I did Extremists, which are portraits of metapolitical thinkers, and then we did this book called Reactionary Modernism, which is about right-wing modernist artists. And then finally, we brought this out. And this I just called The Cultured Thug because, well, it's all about culture. But it's sort of a pseudo-unity. It's sort of like this book that came out in 1988, a collection of Ayn Rand essays called The Voice of Reason. There was absolutely no unity to the book. It was just basically a bunch of leftover stuff that hadn't been anthologized. So the editor gave it the subtitle, Essays in Objectivist Thought, which could 
have applied to any of her books. And so it, it, it's kind of a pseudo unity, but I wanted to bring this out because all of these pieces deserve to be read. It's just that the context in which they're placed is kind of wide open. It's kind of a miscellaneous collection. So we have things on Shakespeare and Elgar. We have things on totalitarianism. We have a couple of movie reviews, uh, movie essays at the end, uh, and a couple of book reviews. Uh, but it does sort of fall together under this rubric of the culture thug. It was a term that uh, Jonathan used that's become popular because, well, it, it captures both his commitment to vitalism and his commitment to culture. And he uses vitalism as a lens to criticize culture. Uh, so that, that was the, the rationale for calling it the culture thug. And that phrase has resonated with a lot of people. It became the pen name of a commentator online, for instance. And I thought it would be a great title for a book. And so I fired it out under that title. I got a great picture of Jonathan in his younger years before he became widely known as a speaker, looking, I, I don't know, kind of bohemian, actually. So I, I thought it was a, a great package as well. We use the ransom note cut-up font <laughs> for the title because I wanted to communicate that there might be something a little dangerous and outré about this book. And of course, the fonts are, are very elegant fonts, but very elegant cultured fonts cut up and juxtaposed together in a kind of payas or you're going to get your kid's ear in the mail feel is, I, I, I thought it, it captured the the, the thuggery of the of the thing as well. So anyway, th that that being said, you focused in on a couple of the essays on the left. So what stood out about these for you, Margo? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, uh, a couple of things. First of all, they're they're both very uh, uh, enjoyable. Uh, these started as well. These were lectures for. Uh, London Forum or New Right or whatever it was in London, and uh, when you when you have an hour or so to fill, you can really go to town. And he doesn't mind going off on these uh, do loops, these these side stories, and he tells a lot of very uh, very funny ones. Uh, one one of the side stories that I mentioned in my review is, uh, oh, you know, what, what is his personal connection to 1984? Well, uh, when he was uh, in a Catholic secondary school in Reading, I think it was called the Present uh, Presentation College, he played O'Brien, <laughs> and uh, the uh, the rest of the uh, production was was a disaster, miscast. I won't uh, I won't read the thing out here, but you can go to it. It's a very very funny paragraph that I quote, and uh, uh, so it's something that he enjoys very much. But he 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 has some. Uh, real boo-boos in there. He has that Orwell uh, wrote 1984 while living in a tent on the barren windswept isle of Jura in the inner Hebrides. Actually, he was in a fairly comfortable, warm farmhouse that had been lent him by his publisher friend, David Astor. He, he was getting some very good uh, patronage from his upper-class friends is members of the inner party. What he's really wrestling with here is something that should be obvious to us. It was obvious to everybody at the time. Uh, the book was published 
And uh, that is, 1984 is quite frankly a caricature or a depiction, a realistic depiction, thought the people behind the Iron Curtain, realistic depiction of, of Stalinism. But that was very controversial. The book was denounced as right-wing propaganda uh, so that Orwell and his publisher actually had to, they had to put out a press release, I think when the book was published, June 1949, saying 1984 is not about communism. It's, it's not a condemnation of Stalinism. It's really about, and so they fell back on that uh, uh, meaningless cant word, totalitarianism, uh, which is a really phony concept. It's a deceitful usage, but it was endemic in the soft left of the period. Uh, they wanted to pretend that fascism, na Nazism, Christian nationalism, Stalinism, Bolshevism, they all come under, they all come from the same root. Uh, the whole partisan review gang signed on to that. Uh, Hannah Arendt wrote a whole book called On the Origins of Totalitarianism. Uh, Orwell was one of the partisan review crowds, James Burnham. And what they had in common was that they were ex-Trotskyists uh, ex or Trotskyites, as the Stalinists called them. So Orwell and Warburg have to defend themselves. And they say, no, this isn't about Stalinism. It's about generic totalitarianism. Then Bowden, for his part, he goes on to show the parallels between the Soviet-style terror regimes and what's depicted in 1984. And he says the... Uh, People behind the Iron Curtain readily recognized what 1984 was all about. Their use of empty-headed political cant, ideological uh, phrases, the duck speak, just parroting, duck quacking ideological phrases. This is something very difficult to translate in movies and plays about 1984. But uh, we do get a good explanation of where we're going in the book and what Orwell's true intent was when he goes in at length about newspeak. They're just going to rewrite the language. So you cannot mm -hmm. express any thoughts you have that might be uh, contrarian. Mm -hmm. I, I thought this was a wonderful essay. I love 1984. I think it's a great novel. I did not though, realized, because I hadn't read much about the context of it. I didn't actually know that much about Orwell, although I had read a number of his other books. And what jumped out for me when I first heard this Bowden speech more than a decade ago was he pointed out something that should have been obvious, but just wasn't, which is that he's criticizing him from a somewhat Trotskyist left viewpoint and that Goldstein represents Trotsky, and that what this is, is a, if you will, an inner party quarrel that's, that's going on here. This was not written from the point of view of the right. And I, I hadn't grasped that. For some reason, I thought that uh, Orwell was in some ways a man of the right who had done a lot of research on, on the left. I, I knew that he had been involved in the Spanish Civil War with the anarchists. He not only was in the Spanish Civil War, he originally tried to sign up with a communist brigade and they mm -hmm. wouldn't let him in 
because he was politically incorrect. So he had to go with sort of a popular front anarcho anarcho syndicalist uh, bunch of people. No, he mm-hmm. had he he had to pose as a man of the left just in order to get published. He would just be blackballed uh, if if he didn't do that. And this was probably true of a lot of people who uh, were branded as uh, Trotskyists, Trotskyists at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, James, uh, do you have any thoughts or questions about this particular essay or speech? Um, no, not really. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a fine, fine speech and uh, very interesting. And as Margot said, she's... Uh, written a review on countercurrents uh, that you can all read uh, that uh, goes into some of the uh, uh, inside baseball, as it were, or uh, sort of like ripping the masks off uh, some of the, uh, the people and the ideas in it. Um, so it's well worth, uh, well worth your time and uh, well worth uh, being supplemented with uh, Margot's uh, review as well. I just, yeah, Marco, how much have you written on Orwell for us? You've written more than half a dozen pieces. Over I, the think, years. I think I've correct? done a half dozen pieces, and I, I, I probably sketched out a couple more. I, I could probably compile them into a slim book. Uh, yes. uh, what, like what, what fascinates me, coming back to uh, Bowden or Bowden, uh, we've had some discussion about that name, uh, is that uh, he's obsessed with O'Brien. He, ha- he has this idea that O'Brien is supposed to be some kind of a, uh, a, a priestly, e- evil, uh, religious figure when, when it's as plain as day to me that he's basing O'Brien actually on a longtime friend of his, Cyril Connolly, who was, uh, figuratively speaking, in the inner party. He, he was one of those uh, toffs who had money and position. Uh, and got Orwell work. A couple of other people were uh, an editor named uh, Richard Reese, and then there was David Astor, Nancy Astor's son, who published The Observer, uh, who gave him that house uh, on the Scottish island. But uh, let's see. My, my, my other oddball theory that I'm going to stick with is, is that O'Brien in the book was meant to be a good guy. Uh, when we first meet him, he's very sympathetic. Julia and Winston go to his flat and meet him. He turns the telescreen down. He gives them wine, gives them the book, and he seems to be their friend. And then about a third from the end of the book, uh, he comes to take him out of the jail cell, out of, he takes Winston out of prison. And after that, you know, we have uh, terror and torture for many pages. And it's a this point that Orwell got lost, he didn't know how to end the book. I think he wanted to give it a happy ending with O'Brien and Julia and Winston finding a way of escape uh, or uh, fighting back against Big Brother. And he he was very ill. He was still on the island. It was cold. He couldn't find a typist to, to, to hire. He had to write and type his manuscript in late 1948. Uh, so he had to find a way to close it up. So he filled it up by stuffing it with lots of extraneous stuff like that theory and practice of oligarchical collectivism, that, that strange book that's supposed to be by, uh, maybe by Goldstein. It's actually sort of a parody of James Burnham, the managerial revolution. 
and then there are those long torture scenes. And that was the best he could do. He sent it off to his publisher, the manuscript, and said, you know, I'm, I, I've really botched this, I'm afraid, but at least here it is. And he never really got over the, the idea that he didn't end the book correctly, the way he had planned to. And the reason I think he wanted a happy ending is that this follows the same plot arc as an early novel of his, Keep the Aspidistra Flying, about a, a penniless poet who has a terrible job and he's always being spied upon by the landlady. And he follows the same course as, as Winston. He has, a, he has, a, he has a, a benefactor who helps him out. Uh, he gets in trouble, goes to jail. The benefactor comes and takes him out the same way that O'Brien does. But instead of taking him to the torture chamber, as in 1984, he, he takes him home and sort of nurses him back to health and tells him to get his life together. And again, this character, Gordon Comstock, he has a girlfriend whom he's trying to make love to in the country. And they end up together at the end. They're happy. It has a happy ending. Uh, it was made into a very bad movie with Richard E. Grant, but it's a very good novel, even though it was one that Orwell himself hated very much. I, I had no idea about that. That's very interesting. Um, uh, Catherine, uh, do you have any thoughts or questions about this particular piece, the, the 1984 piece? Well, I'm embarrassed to say that I have not actually read 1984, uh, not, not the piece in the book, but just the book itself, 1984 by, by Orwell. Um, so a lot of it was, was sort of kind of new to me. Um, and I'm interested in hearing if, uh, if Margot thinks that, uh, she sort of mentioned in passing that maybe Orwell had to position himself as, as a person of, of the left, but does Margot think that maybe he was not, or he was not so easy to place or was he sort of. Mm. I don't know. You know, I had a friend who was uh, not terribly worldly wise or knowledgeable, and uh, she knew that I was a big Orwell fan. She formed the uh, opinion that Orwell was a kind of fascist, and there's something about his looks, and we're told that there, there was something about his officer class manner and that mustache of his that makes him look as though he really, he might've he, he might have been in Mosley's crowd. So you could see where people get that idea, that and the fact that, of course, he was very much anti-communist. But no, he, in order to get published, in order to get his books published, he needed to, uh, if he was gonna do anything political, and in the 30s, everything was political, he had to pretend to be an idiosyncratic kind of, left person and he got himself in trouble with one of his his one of his first major publishers victor golands who was a oxford educated polish jew who ran something called the left book club uh he uh, he published many many authors uh first book uh he published colin wilson's the outsider so he he covered a lot of ground he wasn't just putting out leftist tracks. But when Orwell came to write the book, 
the nonfiction book, The Road to Wigan Pier. Uh, the second half of it was devoted to an excoriation of what was wrong with socialism, uh, what was wrong with socialists. They were sandal-wearing fruit juice drinkers. They were hippies. I remember that. Yes, you know, it, it, it was as though he, he, he just slammed and damned uh, socialists. And Victor Golath was so embarrassed by this that although he published the book, I don't think he ever published anything again by Orwell. And he had to write a long apologetic foreword, uh, the reader, the readers being mostly uh, members of the Left Book Club. Left Book Club was big in the 30s and 40s. They, uh, the books were all published with near identical yellow covers. So you could e easily spot them on, on a bookshelf or in a bookstore. He had a real, he had a real trademark. After that, he was, after that Orwell was, was, was politically suspect. The communists wouldn't let him fight for them in Spain, in Barcelona. They tried to arrest him, probably to kill him. Uh, he was shot in the throat, nearly killed. Uh, that's put down to some kind of a fascist sniper who apparently was, was anonymous and has never announced himself. Uh, it seems to me if somebody was the one who shot Orwell, uh, we would know that person's name. He and his wife, Orwell and his wife, had to sneak out of Barcelona in 37 because they were going to be arrested and thrown in prison by the communists, as many of their colleagues were. So uh, he kept calling himself a man of the left, but he, his, his leftism was a notably a nationalistic one. He believed in, in, in nation and peoplehood and tradition, and there just really wasn't much of a place for that kind of sentiment in the official leftist circles of the late 30s, early 40s. Absolutely. That, that's very interesting. Let's wrap uh, up with, with just one quick question. Do you think this is a good introduction if somebody hasn't read 1984 to, uh, to give them a sense of what the book is like and, and whether it's worth reading? I think it is because even though he gets, he, he makes a few mistakes and has a personal bias and has a personal involvement with, with it, that, that supercharges his enthusiasm and rhetoric. And I think Bowden does a real slap up job w with this lecture essay. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, what I'd like to do now is let's, let's move to first Catherine. Catherine, what jumps out of this collection to you? Well, I'm going to be true to type. And uh, I, I really loved the, the Shakespeare essay that he starts out with, that the book starts out with right after your introduction. And I, but I think I should also pair it with the, uh, the Greek, the, the uh, short article that he writes about the, some of the ancient Greek uh, playwrights, particularly Aeschylus and Aeschylus's Agamemnon, because they're both talking about not just not just plays and and the writers who wrote them, but I think you you in the introduction and then in the introduction to this podcast uh, said the word dangerous, and I think both of these essays 
are about uh, the danger of language. I think, at least to me, what seems to be lost in a lot of, uh, you know, contemporary, modern day, uh, even writing, not just not just when you're talking to people, but nobody ever seems to say anything real, um, countercurrents notwithstanding. But when you're talking with people, this HRification of society, it's like nobody says anything that that gets to the meat of something, the, the blood and the bone. I think he, that's the, some of the, the quotes that he uses in the essay on Shakespeare and uh, Aeschylus. And in Shakespeare, he focuses on a couple of plays that are, you know, maybe not, maybe would be problematic today um, he mentions Othello, which is an obvious one because it's talking about race and how crossing the color line ends up uh, destroying the two protagonists. He talks about, uh, mentions briefly the taming of the shrew, uh, the merchant of Venice, which just sort of passes on on uh, thoughts about Jews in, the, in early modern England. And he talks about revenge dramas which I love revenge dramas. Um, I think they're, they're, just, they're just great because at the end, and he mentions this, it can be sort of comical because you have this entire scene where everybody has died basically, except maybe one person who's, who's meant to be there and tell the story. Um, but Shakespeare loved it, the audience has loved it, and we've loved it since the ancient Greek uh, times. Um, so, but he talks about Shakespeare's language, as in you take everything away, you take the setting, the early modern setting, and you've still got this, these, these gold nuggets, which are the language, the iambic pentameter that makes it uh, vital, that makes it sort of incantatory. I think that's the word that he used. Um, it's this rhythm as if you're saying a spell and that's its power. It's not this fusty language you know, but when you say it, you feel it. And I think he he talks about that too in his in his piece on Aeschylus and Agamemnon, where it's the Greeks, the Greek plays don't get enough attention. He says that and I, I completely agree. I'm actually reading the Persians, uh, also by Aeschylus right now. And it's the first extant play that we know of in Western literature. And it takes the point of view of the Persians and Aeschylus is writing after Xerxes' invasion of Greece. Um, and it's, it's been a complete disaster. But the play begins where they're waiting in Persia, uh, the capital there. Uh, the, the Xerxes' mother is waiting. All of Persia has emptied out of its young men and they're just sort of waiting to hear back. And, you know, when, when the news arrives, they just can't believe it. The line is, defeat is impossible. Defeat is unthinkable. We have always been the favorites of fate. Fortune has cupped us in her golden palms. It has only been a matter of choosing our desire, which fruit to pick from the nodding tree.
and this is this kind of resonates because we live in a society that is obviously declining. You know, it hasn't collapsed yet, but you don't really believe it. In your heart, you don't really believe it, even when you when you see it, when you know it intellectually, until you're faced with the bloody reality and you don't believe it in your heart. And I don't think in that play, the Persians still sort of can't believe their complete defeat by these you know, backwater Greeks, you know, living, living, living on these small islands along the coasts. And Bowden is right. You, they're very short, these Greek plays are. You can read them in about one to two hours and um, choose any of them. And he's right. It, it gives you a real sense of this kind of uh, pagan world. I'm a person who, who thinks that the pagan sensibility and the Christian sensibility, both of them are very important to who we are as Europeans. And in Shakespeare, he mentions this. You see the kind of English, English national Christianity that uh, had emerged after the Reformation, after Henry VIII uh, had, had made himself head of the English church, established Anglicanism. And so you see that, but Shakespeare, you, you can hardly go for a page or two without some sort of classical illusion, whether it's from some of our Roman authors or Greek authors by way of the Roman authors, uh, but there's, there's, they, they're also living in such a Christian time as well that you have to have all of these. It's just you're marinating in this, this past uh, with this wonderful language. And so I think those are the two essays that, that I really liked the most. That's wonderful. My reaction to both of those was well, first of all, I edited the Aeschylus piece. He actually sent that to Countercurrents years ago. And he did a much longer piece where he talks about tragedy that we published in the, the volume called uh, The Western Civilization Bites Back. Uh, it's a transcript of a lecture he gave at a group called Iona. And I, I found it very interesting to look at the, the short version, the three-page version, and then the you know, hour-long speech version where he uh, expands this, the contracted and expanded versions. We have a number of pieces like that, a three-page piece on T.S. Eliot and a 30-page transcript on T.S. Eliot. Uh, and uh, I, I, I found that fascinating just to, just to see how he could uh, write tiny little things, practically engrave them on a pinhead, <laughs> three pages long, and then do these vast uh, uh, lectures, and they're they're all quite meaningful, though. So I, 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 I very much like that little piece on Aeschylus. Uh, the the piece it, it could be an introduction to a paperback edition of Agamemnon, something like that. It's just a a nice little intro to get you into actually reading the book. Uh, and I felt that the the Shakespeare piece functioned the same way. Uh, it, it's there as a kind of preface. Uh, he, he wrote a lot of pieces that could be considered prefaces to the works of great writers uh, in, in the tradition. And, and I like that because one of the things that he wanted to do and one of the things that I second is 
educating people, especially educating people outside of academia, where all these things have become so problematic that they're not even taught uh, in many ways. And if they are taught, they're taught in ways that just put up barriers uh, to the tradition. And this is one of the reasons why he liked countercurrents, because uh, back in 2012, he said that he saw countercurrents as a kind of university where you could get a university education without the political correctness or the, uh, the terrible cost. Uh, and so I, I think these works are wonderful as introductions, as sort of protreptics to get people actually encountering these, these classic writers. Uh, James, do you have any questions or thoughts about the, uh, the Shakespeare and Aeschylus pieces? Um, no, <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, they're fine pieces. Um, and, uh, I think you're right. They would serve as excellent introductions, uh, to, uh, uh, perhaps a, a countercurrents, uh, classics, uh, series. Um, and, um, you know, by the way, 1984 is, uh, in the public domain now, I believe. So, uh, you could, uh, hmm. package some, uh, some, uh, Metroland uh, commentary and whatnot into a additional uh, right as well. Well, that would be very interesting. Yeah, uh, Marcus, also, do you have? Uh, a, oh, go ahead. Well, just just uh, if I might uh, contribute a bit more, since I don't have much to say about the the Shakespeare um, and Aeschylus, uh, I'm I'm rather taken with the idea of, of rewriting uh, 1984 with a happy ending. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking it would be something along the lines of Lucky Jim and uh, with, uh, with O'Brien being like the uh, Gore Urquhart character who shows up and uh, miraculously uh, gives him a job where he wants to, uh, to move to and he can uh, leave with Julia. And uh, he, he gives a, a big speech, but instead of being about Mary England to, to get his uh, tenure, he, uh, he's, he's talking about oligarchic uh, Collectivism. Collectivism. And uh, he's drunk and he, he screws it all up and they, they cart him away. But actually, it's uh, O'Brien uh, rescuing him and uh, taking him really off. So it would be a nice. I am uh, not in favor of rewriting uh, <laughs> Agamemnon <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and Othello for a happy ending. I, I think they're fine. Uh, it is sort of an interesting exercise in, in farce. Um, uh, Bowdlerizing these things, giving them happy endings. There was a organizing them. As, uh, as, as, oh, oh, yeah. Well, I, you know, it's sort of like those books that they brought out. You know, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you, you could, you could, uh, you could just go through the history of tragedy, and and uh, you know, at a certain point, you have somebody uh, pop up and say, "Be reasonable here." <laughs> Be reasonable. Uh, this is not a good idea. I remember the first time I saw King Lear. In fact, it was the only time I saw it live. I think I was 11 years old and I was dragged off to see King Lear. Oh, my goodness. And I was sitting there and I was thinking, oh, dear, this isn't going to end well. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should have stood up and, 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 and run, ran to the front and said, no, 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 please be reasonable here. Uh, this won't end well, um, but 
Well, yeah, like, that, would, that would take tragedies and recapitulate them as farces, I guess. Well, there is that, that book I reviewed on countercurrents about uh, how Kafka was uh, was not a, uh, a uh, dreary uh, Holocaust prophesizing uh, prophet of bureaucratic doom and, and so on. He was actually a comic writer. He, that is to say, he thought of him. It, it wasn't just, oh, we can reinterpret him. No, he, he thought of himself as a comic writer. He thought his stuff was funny. <laughs> <laughs> He would he would read he would read you know the metamorphosis to his circle of friends and he would he would break up laughing, and uh, and all that and and you know the trial is actually uh, a uh, you know a reasonable satire of typical Central European bureaucracy and, and so on but it's mm -hmm. not supposed to be some horrifying vision of the future you know mm -hmm. the way Americans think of it is oh my goodness there's no habeas corpus it's a nightmarish dictatorship no it's Central Europe. <laughs> and uh, he has a lot of fun with it. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's the same idea, you know, maybe, you know, Orwell was really a happy-go-lucky chap and, uh, uh, you know, maybe his publisher forced him to uh, to write a dreary ending, but uh, we're, we're going to get back to the true spirit, you know, it's a historically informed uh, version of the Orwell. The picaresque Orwell. Marco, um, let me bring you in. Do you have any questions or thoughts for Catherine? Uh, what I was taken by uh, in the in, in the Shakespeare piece uh, when I read it was uh, his uh, was, was Bowden's uh, mention of, of, of having to go to to see a production of Shakespeare uh, someplace and about half the cast were blacks. It, it was Julius Caesar, <laughs> and uh, uh, he makes the point that Orson Welles once did an all black. Julius Caesar, but that was that was in, in Harlem, and it was supposed to be all black. Uh, but uh, there's this weird pointlessness of getting a multiracial cast uh, simply because simply because they can, simply because it's permissible. And uh, uh, I have mocked that, uh, 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 made notes of that to friends when I've gone to see Shakespeare in the park here in New York. And they just sort of shake their heads and say, say oh, oh, they've always been doing that. They've always been doing that. And I, I'd like to know why. It, uh, uh, it, it's as though they're trying to, uh, they're trying to co-opt Shakespeare uh, or they're trying mm -hmm. to tarnish him or they're trying to uh, 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 give a touch of the tar brush to Western culture, uh, especially to something as iconic as Shakespeare. One thing that uh, I did not see, but I heard about, and there was a bit of a, a, a stink about it, was in Budapest, they did an all white version of Porgy and Bess. Oh, that's great. Well, yeah. And, uh, but on what grounds could anybody complain about that? It's funny. There is this attitude about diversity, especially in high culture, that what's theirs is theirs, namely Porgy and Bess, and what's everybody else's is negotiable. And it just so happened that you know, there, there weren't any Black Hungarian opera singers to sing Porgy and Bess, so they just had white Hungarians I don't think they did them up in blackface, though. That that would have 
caused NATO to move in or something like that. But uh, I, I thought that was very, very funny. It's only supposed to go one direction, but you know, Hungary is just way out of step. Duke Ellington hated Porgy and Bess because, uh, because it was so Negro. He denounced, <laughs> it for, he denounced it for quote unquote, lap black Negroisms. He didn't like it because it was so necessarily derisory and, uh, and, and colored and a kind of caricature of what colored life in Charleston was supposed to be. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Uh, well, you know, the uh, uh, Stanley Crouch in the book on Charlie Parker that uh, I reviewed for Countercurrents called uh, Kansas City Lightning uh, mentions uh, this, this sort of thing, that there was a uh, by the, the 40s and so on, uh, young black uh, jazz musicians were looking at people like Duke Ellington uh, or even Cab Calloway as, as models as uh, people who were, you know, dignified and well-dressed and respectable and uh, weren't, uh, you know, just, you know, doing minstrel shows, <laughs> as it were, um, you know, just uh, you know, no longer as mere uh, entertainers and so on. So that doesn't uh, surprise me that, although I'd never heard it before, that uh, Duke Ellington was, was uh, sort of professionally offended by uh, Porgy and Bess, which, of course, was written by Jews. Right. Uh, well, well, James, let's move along to you. Uh, oh, dear. Oh, my. Oh, you're now on the spot. You're on the spot. So what are your favorite parts of this book? Well, actually, there were three favorite parts, but uh, I should probably uh, confine myself to two of them. Um, and uh, oddly enough, or perhaps not oddly enough, I like the, uh, the essays on uh, the Americans, uh, the uh, Lovecraft and Jeffers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, but I also like the essay on Elgar, and uh, they all sort of flow together in the middle of the, in the second third of the book, I guess, or the second quarter of the book. So they all, they, they, they kind of flow together all of a piece, but you have, you know, Elgar, this archetypally British sort of guy, and then you have Lovecraft, who uh, I guess liked to think of himself as a British guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have Jeffers, who I think thought of himself as a, as a pagan Greek or something like that. Um, but uh, to, to start with Elgar, I was, I was uh, glad to see uh, Elgar in there. Um, I like Elgar. I liked him for many years. And uh, I was glad to see how, uh, how Bowden uh, was, was presenting him. As uh, he says, he's not, he was not a... Uh, he says he was a radical. Uh, <clears throat> people, of course, still think of Elgar as, as being this, this stuffy, mustachioed uh, Edwardian uh, type, uh, but he was—he <clears throat> was not. He was—he—he uh, he was a, a radical, as, as Bowden calls him, uh, and he—he—he he, he was uh, trying to uh, to uh, uh, express the the spirit of the English. Uh, through his own uh, unique perspective, and uh, therefore produced uh, these these works of genius. And I'm glad that he, em he emphasizes the uh, the rather mm, uh, uh, I don't want to say oddball, but the the very strangeness of 
a lot of Elgar's work. I mean, the first piece of Elgar that I ever really heard or was introduced to as such was his second symphony, which is an odd kind of place to start with. And uh, it's, it's basically a sort of musical portrait of manic depression, uh, which you don't really associate with uh, Elgar. Um, <clears throat> people still largely think of Elgar as the guy who wrote Pomp and Circumstance. And, uh, uh, and uh, you know, acknowledges that there's that, that element to it. Uh, Colin Wilson, uh, who wrote a nice essay on British music, uh, only a single little essay on British music, because that's all it really deserved, he thought, and his uh, book of music criticism uh, says that the, uh, the opening of Elgar's first symphony sounds like the entire British empire marching off to war. And uh, that's, uh, that's sort of the, the image of, uh, <clears throat> of Elgar. But um, the second symphony and, and the, the, of course, the cello concerto, which is his last major work, uh, are very, uh, very different works. Uh, the second symphony was a failure. Uh, Elgar said that the audience sat there like stuffed pigs. And, uh, <laughs> <clears throat> so you imagine that this is a, this isn't, this isn't marching music. This, this isn't the glories of the empire. What, what is this nonsense? Mm -hmm. uh, there's actually in the in the adagio. There's a remarkable movement that's uh, almost like the uh, the slow portion of uh, Mars in uh, Holst the Planets, which sounds like somebody described as sounding like a, a dying man firing a machine gun. And uh, Elgar does this, uh, as a similar sort of effect that it sounds like a, a dying bike, bagpipe player. It's a really very striking uh, piece. Uh, <clears throat> that's in that's in the uh, depressive part of the symphony. The, you know, the first movement is the manic part. So he has this, these, these weird mood swings. Uh, mm -hmm. So in other words, he's a very much more serious uh, composer. And I like what Al, uh, generally that what Auden uh, what Auden uh, Bowden, what Bowden says generally about art, where he says that um, art is hard and uh, that it's about objectification, creating objects out of emotional states, uh, which is uh, sort of reminded me of, of Eliot's uh, idea of objective correlatives. Um, but uh, I like that idea, particularly in regards to music, because objectification is, uh, of course, what Schopenhauer was always talking about. Uh, who, uh, of course, considered music to be the greatest of, of the arts. Uh, so I like this idea of, of uh, art being uh, the, the attempt by a composer to, or, or any kind of artist, to impose a structure on chaos, uh, as, uh, as uh, Powden talks about, uh, you know, the chaos that the modernists were facing and uh, what uh, people like Elgar and Eliot and so on, I guess, were, uh, were trying to do was to find a way to impose order on it. Um, so I like all that. I like uh, all that uh, all that very much. Uh, I also like the essay on Lovecraft, where he uh, he says uh, many of the same things that um, uh, Lovecraft uh, Lovecraft's writing is an attempt to uh, objectify or to give form and to strengthen, as he says, uh, dreams, uh, which is a, is a very interesting idea. I uh, like how he talks about uh, here and there about uh, Lovecraft as a kind of proto-internet figure, uh, which I have written about before uh, in uh, a review on countercurrents of uh, a publication of uh, Lovecraft's uh, homemade magazine, The Conservative. 
uh, and Bowden talks about this amateur press movement that was in America in the early part of the 20th century, which is very much like people writing blogs and things today. Uh, you know, the United Press, United Amateur Press Association was really their version of Substack. And, uh, uh, and uh, Lovecraft was uh, into that. And uh, he later mentions uh, Lovecraft's uh, obsessive uh, letter writing as being like someone addicted to email uh, today, uh, which I, I think is, a, is an interesting point of view. And I would say something is not surprising in a way that Lovecraft endures because he's really a surprisingly modern figure. And one thing that uh, Bowden says about his writing in general there is uh, that uh, he says an, an aside in the Lovecraft piece that um, uh, he says, I, I talk about these things uh, in order to uh, make comments on the stuff that's going on now. And uh, with regards to, um, to, uh, to Lovecraft, uh, he talks about, uh, uh, yeah, this is the quote, I always use these talks to illustrate certain little things. And he goes on to talk about the significance of Obama's election, which he says, no one is, no one is really talking about. But uh, of course, this reminded me of a piece by Michael O'Mara in uh, uh, Towards the White Republic, uh, published by Countercurrents. And uh, they essentially say the same thing, that uh, you know, the election of Obama is the, signals the end of white America. And uh, that uh, another, uh, which of course leads to, uh, you know, the issue of Lovecraft's racism. As it's as people talk about it, and this is another example of how strangely modern he is. You know, Lovecraft goes to New York and and he's horrified, <laughs> if I may use that word, uh, by what he sees, and it's it's bizarre to us because he's talking in the 1920s, which most people think was a white utopia, uh, <clears throat> but he's really kind of prophetic. You could see him as as deranged as most uh, liberals do. Look how crazy he is. You see, you know, uh, there's a book. Uh, Midnight Rambles about uh, Lovecraft's time in New York that was recently released a couple months ago. And, uh, you know, they, they quote all these statistics to show that, you know, New York was hardly any minorities were in New York. And what's Lovecraft talking about and so on. But another way to look at it is how prophetic he was, because what he's describing is New York today. And, uh, you know, just just this last week, we had the spectacle of the uh, the Jews tunneling under Brooklyn. Uh, which is straight out of Lovecraft's uh, story, uh, the uh, the horror at Red Hook uh, is is uh, is exactly that. It's as if as if he could see the future. Um, in general, what I like about what Bowden, Bowden talks about, uh, and this connects to the Robinson Jeffers thing, which where he goes into some more details. He talks about what I've called taking a phrase from uh, Griel Marcus's book on Bob Dylan, the old weird America. And uh, Jeffers is even uh, more obviously part of the old weird America, the uh, the America that we don't hear about anymore. Uh, you know, the the Madison Grant America uh, and other such figures, um, which I think Countercurrents has been doing some some things to uh, to rediscover. So it was nice to see this uh, this Englishman uh, perceptive perceptive enough to uh, uh, talk about. Uh, you know, the difference between what America has become and what America used to be and could have been. And uh, what he finds in Jeffers and Lovecraft are uh, uh, examples of, of uh, a different America, 
America that used to be and isn't anymore, maybe will be someday again. Uh, the old weird America, in other words. Um, so that's what I have off the top of my head. I'm willing to uh, take questions now if anyone wishes to have any questions or. <laughs> well, Margo, uh, do you have any questions or thoughts about these particular pieces? Uh... You know, I was, I, well, uh, James was talking. I uh, found myself uh, reading about the Second Symphony. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I, I can't say I'm familiar with it, but uh, as soon as we log off, I am, I am, I am going to give it a listen. So it's a, uh, it's an educational experience for me. Mm -hmm. uh, Catherine, do you have any thoughts about these pieces or questions? Well, it, I guess it just occurs to me that Bowden is, is sort of like this, this, this old weird Western thought that he's, that he's talking about through all these pieces and all of these writers that, that maybe don't fit so, so very well into, uh, you know, mainstream thought or, or how you're supposed to think and left, right. I mean, whatever it's, uh, but Lovecraft, Orwell, Shakespeare, es certainly Aeschylus, right? Old weird Western mm -hmm. thought, because, you know, we do have a culture. And I think that's, that's part of the point of, of Bowden's book that we're not just this, you know, generic, uh, you know, very boring, you know, place that, that we can't see our culture. No, when we go back and read these works that, you know, seem old and, and weird, uh, but, but also very telling to us. Um, I think we can, we can grasp uh, what it is that Bowden and, and, and what we need to look at and need to keep reading. Yeah, I really liked uh, the theme that runs in the Robinson Jeffers piece and to some extent in the Lovecraft piece about that other America that European, that self-consciously European America that has basically been, well, it's been disprivileged, as he likes to say. It's one of his favorite words. Uh, it's It's been problematized. It's been swept away. And I I, I think it's interesting that he, he wanted to focus on those sorts of American figures. And I wish that he had had a chance to write more about them or speak more about them. It would have been an interesting book a sort of um, not democracy in America, but anti-democratic America. We we would have a British traveler come and uh, survey America and write uh, uh, something about the uh, the illiberal America. I think that would have been a, a fascinating project, and it's just a shame that he never had a chance to do that. I personally really love the Robinson Jeffers piece, and. In February of 2012, uh, I brought uh, Jonathan out to California when this is when I was living in San Francisco and countercurrents had been going for basically a couple of years, uh, not even two years by this point, and going on three years, I should say. And we had a retreat in Santa Cruz. And Jonathan spent about five days with us, I believe. Uh, at the retreat and then before it and after it. And it was real pleasure. I recorded a long interview with him, which I published. I spent a lot of time talking with him. I went to bookstores with him and things like that. Uh, we, we, we toured around and he was very interested in Jeffers. And one of the things that we made plans on doing 
the next time he came to America, and we were already talking about bringing him back in the fall of 2012, was we were going to take a trip to Tor House in Carmel-by-the-Sea, which is the house that was built by Robinson Jeffers. And I regret that we didn't think about that when he was there because a month after he left, he died. And so that was something we never got to do. But I would have loved to have uh, gone around Tor House with uh, with Jonathan Bowden because he was certainly uh, a great lover of Jeffers's work. And I think he would have... Uh, it would have been interesting to see him. He had a kind of childlike quality about him and it would have been fun to have experienced it, uh, not just for myself, but to sort of see it through his eyes as he was uh, experiencing the place as well. And it's a, it's a rather magical place. It's really a quite remarkable uh, artist's abode. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, the man was present there. He lived there. He even died there. There's a room where he died. Um, his wife died in that room and he died in that room. And so it's, uh, it's definitely haunted with, uh, with Robinson Jeffers' spirit. And I find him to be my favorite American poet. Uh, I like Ezra Pound, but less as a poet than as an essayist. And I, I love Jeffers' poetry because it's, it's genuinely musical, but it's also very, very deep. It's, pantheistic. It's pagan. It's kind of Nietzschean. He was also a America firster. He was a skeptic about the Second World War. He was not a humanist. Uh, he was not a liberal. He was in many ways an artist of the right. And for a long time, though, was hailed as one of America's great poets, but he was unpersoned after World War II, basically, because of his political views, which is really a shame. But his house remains and his reputation remains. People still publish him. People still write about him. Most importantly, the public still reads him. So I thought this was a wonderful piece to encourage people, again, as a, a sort of introduction to Jeffers to, to take up his work. So that was my favorite part of this book, uh, most definitely. So is there, a, I, I, I guess... The next thing I'd like to ask is, is there a part of this that you found objectionable? What's your least favorite part? One thing I, I, I'll, I'll lead on this. I'm just, I'm just throwing this question out there. I'm, I'm, I'm blindsiding you all with this. So I'll give you time to think about it. In some ways, my least favorite part is the uh, Lovecraft essay. And it's not because he doesn't say great things about Lovecraft. He does. But near the end, when he starts summarizing certain stories, he really goes off the rails. <laughs> and if you listen to him, he's just in the moment. He's caught up and he's having a tremendous amount of fun with this speech. But when he starts describing the Dunwich Horror, and recounting the Dunwich Horror, well, it's not exactly accurate in, in a lot of different ways. And it's very inaccurate when he talks about the color out of space. And it just sort of verges on parody. Another thing about Jonathan is that he was a wonderful mimic, but he is, was absolutely terrible at mimicking American accents for some reason. And so his American accents are, are a little off when he runs through that. And so 
I, I love the piece when he's analyzing Lovecraft and I was sort of baffled by his summary summaries near the end because they, they, they really took a lot of liberties with the story. And I just wonder why. Did, was he just sort of caught up in the moment? Was he not remembering them well or what? But th that was one thing that, you know, if I, if I started annotating every little error, there would have been like reams of notes in, in those pages. And so I just sort of passed over all that in silence. I made a, a, a one or two desultory notes saying that this is not exactly correct. But anyway, that, that was the part that uh, for me was my least favorite. I personally loved also the, the speech on British sculpture. And when he did that, it, you know, it's, it's available in the archive. Uh, he had a friend basically hold a camera while he just riffed through a history of British sculpture book and talked about the things from the book. And the quality of the images is very poor and it, it's just kind of hard to follow sometimes. But the, one of the people who worked on this project with me, our author, author of My Nationalist Pony, Buttercup Dew, he went through an enormous labor to find the names of every work of art that Bowden talks about. And he went through the labor of finding good quality public domain images of all these works of art. And we took the audio of the original talk, the original film, and we, uh, he, not we, he did all the work of cutting it together with new and better images. And so the quality of, of the experience is, is much better. And that, that is something that uh, we, I'm, I'm very proud of. Now, we couldn't include all those images because it would have added 40 pages to the total length of the book. And so what we did is we simply put the, the transcript in there with headings about each of the pieces that, that you know, uh, identifies them. And if you go to the Bowden archive, uh, you can hear him narrating and you can see both the original version and the souped up version with improved images. And uh, also the sound quality has improved some. So that that's, I think, a very important contribution in this book as well. And, but just to go back, I do find uh, that my, my least favorite part is when he's narrating the actual Lovecraft tales. Margo, is there a part of this book that you object to? Is there stuff that you wish you could have said, Jonathan, can you, can you go through another draft on this? Uh, or Jonathan, what are you trying to say here? Uh, no, no. I, uh, I said in my, in my review that I was sort of disappointed in the George Steiner thing, uh, mm -hmm. the uh, voyage to San Cristobal of uh, A.H. Uh, I thought it was going to be better. Uh, I don't have a read on George Steiner, and I've read about him a little here and there all my life. And uh, uh, he didn't. Uh, he, he he was trying to make a uh, a sale. That is, Jonathan was trying to make a sale about how intellectual Jews like Steiner have this 
uh, a serious uh, attraction, a serious bond with Hitler. And it's, it has nothing to do with, you know, the Hollywood version, dipsy doodle, you know, uh, most evil man who ever lived kind of thing. Uh, it, it has much more of an, of an intellectual component. He does make that point. Uh, but I, I, I wish he had, you know, given us a little more to make uh, George Steiner interesting because I've tried to read about him and he comes across as 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 a real cipher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Steiner is somebody that I find sort of unreadable. I read his little book on Heidegger and thought it was very superficial. I read his book, Real Presences, and I just sort of found it uh, basically a model of the kind of writing that I want to avoid. <laughs> and uh, it sort of served as a negative model for me. He was an amazingly learned guy. He was a real polymath. He was self-consciously pro-diaspora Jew. He was not uh, pro-Zionist. And uh, he's one of these people, though, where everything is basically about the Holocaust. Everything is, you know, culture has to be reconfigured post-Auschwitz. Uh, you think this BCAD thing matters? No, no, it's, uh, it's before and after Auschwitz. That's going to be the new dividing point in history for him. And I, I don't have much sympathy for that for, for reasons that we don't need to get into. I just don't want our history and culture to be basically reinterpreted through those lenses. I, I think that uh, we've got no interest in that, you know. I, I get why Jews think the Holocaust was the worst thing that ever happened to them. But I just, I just don't feel like we need to, um, you know, hold that. Uh, yeah, well, so. Steiner, Steiner was very insistent when he was advising Jeffrey Wolf at Cambridge that Jeffrey Wolf remember that he is a Jew. He was a Jew. He still is. Uh, but this was news to Jeffrey Wolf because uh, so far as he knew, he was uh, he, uh, his ancestry was Irish and English. His, huh. his father, his father was a con man who pretended to be uh, a sort of a high caste Yankee Episcopalian, but was not. And that was funny because of uh, uh, because of his looks. He wrote a very uh, very funny and touching memoir about his father, the Duke of Deception. And then after Princeton, Jeffrey goes off to Cambridge, and his advisor is George Steiner. And George Steiner would would say things to him like, "You mustn't forget that you are a Jew." <laughs> and this was like the first this was the first time Jeffrey Wolf had ever thought of such a thing. <laughs> That's funny. Did he go along with it, or he didn't? You know, decide to uh, uh, steep himself in Judaica. No, it was a little late for that. By this point, he was in his earlier mid twenties, and it was just uh, he probably put it down to a, an eccentricity uh, on the part of George Steiner. George Steiner, mm -hmm. of course, had had a, a colorful background. I think he came from Viennese Jews who moved to Paris, and then mm -hmm. moved to New York or elsewhere in America, and then. He uh, he ended up going going to England and uh, and was a, a don at, at Cambridge for many years. Mm -hmm. And he was a real polymath. Yes. Yeah. It just just sort of not my cup of tea. I'm afraid. I tried reading his stuff years and years ago, 
and it just did not favorably impress me. I haven't yet read The Portage to San Cristobal of A.H., though, but I did get the book uh, based on Jonathan's recommendation. Uh, Catherine, are there some parts of this book that you find problematic or you would uh, send back for a, another revision? Well, I'm talking to the editor of the book, so, so maybe not. But um, I think it's not so much a criticism of the... Uh, we mentioned that the, the, the essay on Aeschylus was, was pretty short. And, you know, if it's going to be pretty short, you can't really criticize somebody for not going into something. But he ends it with what you were talking about earlier, kind of reinterpreting uh, Western culture through the lenses of, of somebody else, of, of something alien. And he talks about Black Athena. And then he right. kind of leaves it there. And I'm like, oh, but... But what about Black Athena? Because, I mean, I've heard of Black Athena, but I have not gone into too much, you know, read about it too much. It reminds me a lot of the uh, the, the quote Black Madonnas that were very popular in uh, medieval and early modern Europe and that has since been taken in uh, modern times to like, oh, you know, like the Madonna, she was, she was African. It's like, no, that, I mean, that's, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of misinterpreting this. And um, yeah, the black Athena and the kind of focusing on, well, maybe we have African roots to, to Greek culture. Um, he just sort of leaves it there and doesn't really explain, okay, so why if I'm taking up Aeschylus, okay, how, how does this refute black Athena? I, I, I think I kind of wanted a little more uh, about that because he sort of implies it, uh, but doesn't go into exactly what what Black Athena is and and why is it why is it problematic? Mm -hmm. Well, I I probably because I was the original editor of that piece should have asked him to elaborate, but Jonathan had an interesting way of composing. He didn't have a proper computer at home. In fact, near the near the end of his life, uh, when he came to visit, I gave him a, a laptop, <laughs> which he took back to the UK. And well, he never had much chance to use it. Um, but when he would write for countercurrents, what he would do is go to the library and sit down at one of the library computers. He could check it, check it in and he would do his emails and stuff like that. And he would sit down and then he would type up a letter, uh, an essay into the email field and he would give himself as much as an hour he would give himself an hour on the computer basically to do his emails and whatever and write this and uh, he would uh, at the end of an hour just hit send and well i was a little intimidated <laughs> when i first met jonathan and i didn't know how receptive he would be to editing or, well, could you rework this or whatever? And I thought, well, he's just kind of an eccentric genius. And I'm just going to roll with this rather unusual way of composing. And so he would send these pieces. The, the most hermetic and weird piece is the, um, the piece on Nosferatu. It's just kind of wild. And I 
looked at it and uh, you know added a few commas and things like that and and just ran with it. And as I got to know him better and got more comfortable, I would uh, sometimes suggest topics to him uh, or you know but I, I I didn't really say, ah would you uh, would you rework this or something like that? He I don't know if he would be would have been receptive to that or not. Um, he sent me one of his plays and asked me if I would consider publishing it at Countercurrents. And at that point, I really started digging into it and doing copy editing. And I, I spent a while on it and he said, oh, oh, forget it. <laughs> just, oh, don't bother. And so I just sort of dropped it. And I never, I never got to test his receptivity to editing. I don't think he would have pitched a diva fit, honestly. But it was just something that I, I didn't really require so, so or demand of him. And so that little thing about Black Athena, it was just sort of a hit and run thing at the end. And I just thought, okay, well, that's amusing. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, took it and published it. No, it is uh, funny. And, you know, I think he, yeah. he should have published it. Um, that is interesting. I've never really been an, an editor myself, but it must be kind of a a delicate line that, that you have to walk, especially with some of these people who are super talented and you don't necessarily want to, you know, scare them off, but, uh, yeah. you know, that is interesting. You talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, I, I probably should have been a little more assertive about some of these things, but like I said, I was something in, uh, somewhat in awe of him and wanted to definitely develop a long-term relationship with him as a as a publisher because I just thought he was a talented and interesting person. I found his speeches to be better than the stuff that he prepared for publication. Um, sometimes he would labor over these things a little too much. I think the piece on Nosferatu is a little overly uh, labored, whereas he would put a lot of preparation into these speeches, but then he would get up and he would just be mediumistic. It would just, just flow. And I, I find them a lot more accessible. Yes, they're full of digressions and they're not the sort of digressions you would want in a written piece, but digressions are absolutely necessary for spoken lectures, I believe, uh, because uh, you, you, have to, you have to keep people's attention. And one of the ways that you keep people's attention is just to digress from the, the main line a bit, you know, with a little anecdote talking about how he played O'Brien in, in school, things like that. Personal anecdotes, things that are about stuff in the news, whatever. Those are, those are things that are absolutely necessary to maintain the audience of a spoken lecture. And when I lecture... I like to put in digressions like that. And I think it works. And when you can read the room, you can sort of tell, okay, it's time for a little, little digression here. Usually something humorous if, if you've got something uh, at hand. Uh, and then, then you lead people back into the actual discussion. So I, I think that that was actually uh, very good from a spoken word point of view. Yeah, they're, they're the kind of things that you wouldn't include if you were sitting down and, and writing a piece. But Jonathan's written work is very hermetic oftentimes. 
whereas his spoken work is is very fresh and and accessible and uh, often very stirring. So James, what would you have sent back for another draft? Are there parts of this book that you find problematic? Uh, well, um, I was going to say, uh, I'm glad to see Catherine uh, brought it up, uh, the, the Murnau piece. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still don't understand it. And I mean, I've seen the film uh, a couple of times. I mean, I'm not an expert on it or anything like that, but I've seen the film, which seems to be a basic requirement for being able to understand an essay about a film. Yeah. And uh, I've even seen that uh, Shadow of the Vampire film that's sort of a fictionalized account of uh, making that film. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, I can't think of his name of the actor, but a uh, famous guy. Uh, <laughs> uh, he was in Platoon and uh, and so on. But anyway, uh, but yeah, I can't make any sense out of that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, to connect with something you and Catherine have said just now, that um, it may be that if he was, if I was in the audience and he was saying these things, uh, I guess this is a written one though, but yeah. you know, if, if he was talking like that, then it might make sense. <laughs> well, uh, his, his, his lectures are, are first rate, you know, I mean, there's, there's nothing like yeah. that lecture and then you know the transcripts are, are good to have uh, and all that but uh, but uh, you know maybe you know he, maybe he could he could uh, uh, you know read something like this uh, in, you know it's a silent film you know so instead of a musical yeah. soundtrack they could add Bowden's commentary or something like <laughs> that. That might, well, that might, but uh, you know on the written page it's 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 rather opaque yes I, I agree this is one piece where, again, there was a written version of it and then a speech. Unfortunately, the speech on Murnau's Nosferatu apparently was never recorded, or if it has been recorded, no one's brought, brought it forward. And so we just don't know what it, it sounded like in the long, breezy version. Sad to say, we just have the condensed hermetic version of it. Now, I'd like to, to maybe add something about George Steiner. Okay. I, I've never read any of his, his actual books. Um, over the years, I probably may have read, read one or two, uh, like, book reviews or essays in The New Yorker or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't re really recall it. I recall uh, the Portage book, uh, seeing it back in the 70s when it was in a paperback. It was one of those Avon paperbacks that had, like, the curved cover. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know why they printed it. I think because they were publishing lots of Latin American stuff and maybe they thought it was a Latin American book because <laughs> uh, they, they were the publisher. They made billions uh, publishing uh, 100 Years of Solitude. Right. Uh, then they said, oh, we'll publish all these other unknown Latin American stuff like hip hop scotch and so on. And <laughs> maybe they figured that this was another great Latin American. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, but anyway, in defense of George Steiner, even though I've never read any of his other stuff, this this is the man responsible for my favorite book series and uh, my favorite uh, my favorite book, uh, really. Um, he uh, convinced Jonathan Cape in uh, in England and Harper in uh, the United States to put out a, a, a little library 
a little series called Roots of the Right. Oh, yes, yes. Say this. Yeah. This is a good thing to talk, bring up. I have this book in front of me, um, and uh, the Roots of the Right, the actual title is Roots of the Right, Readings in Fascist, Racist, and Elitist Ideology. <clears throat> General Editor George Steiner. They all had black covers. Yes. Uh, with with uh, white uh, sort of Deutsche Grammophon sort of uh, <laughs> cartouche uh, containing the, uh, the uh, name of the book. And these are, are books that to this day, you can't get anywhere else. And if you, if you, if you can find these um, somewhere, the selected writings of uh, Primo de Rivera, mm -hmm. uh, Italian right, uh, the French right from Demister to Moraz, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Gobineau, selected political writings, race and race history and other essays by Alfred Rosenberg, mm -hmm. um, and so on. And the book I have in my hand, Max Stirner, The Ego and His Own. Yes, yes, I was going to ask about the, the Sterner. That um, it is actually John Carroll wrote some sort of dissertation about uh, called Breakout from the Crystal Palace, which is also one of my favorite books. I read that as an undergraduate. Yes. It's so about Nietzsche, Sterner, and Dostoevsky, and I found <laughs> it absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, it's so sitting I, on my bookshelf in this very room. At yeah. this very moment, well, I have I I have a pirated uh, PDF uh, sitting on my computer, uh, but um, anyway, so uh, his his thesis advisor or whatever you call him at Cambridge was George Steiner, mm -hmm. and uh, Steiner had the idea that well, let's include why don't you do a slightly edited version of the ego in its own because it, it's it's over long and overwritten and so on, everyone agrees. Uh, can you cut down a version of it and then write a little introduction based on your dissertation and then I'll put it in this series. So I like to imagine John Carroll sort of like sitting there and saying, Max Turner has nothing to do with racist and elitist ideology. <laughs> he has nothing to do with fascism, uh, but this is good for my career. So sure, thanks, George. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Please, please put my my uh, edition of uh, the ego in its own, which he, he just edited. It's very good that he does this. Uh, it's it's an edited down version of uh, the, the translation that uh, the Libertarian Book Club was republishing, and, and, and places like that. Dover was publishing. You can get the, the the big edition, but this is a slightly smaller one. And he has his little commentary and he has his introduction based on his that dissertation that you and I are, are referring to. And the book is wonderfully put out. It's it's back in the days when mainstream publishers put out decent books. Yeah, you know, it's well made. It looks beautiful. It's got the the deckled edges on the pages. Um, now our our pal uh, over at Underworld Amusements put out a new translation a couple of years ago, which I reviewed on Countercurrents. Mm -hmm. So there is a new edition, and you can get it in paperback and all that. Uh, I think he calls it uh, the Ego, and it's own or he has some slightly different title but um so you don't have to but i i went to the trouble of many years after the fact uh finally running down a hardcover i bought a paperback of it at the book table at the american philosophy association conference in detroit in 1975. uh that <clears throat> that disappeared after a number of years but i, I several years ago i used the internet to get a, a hardcover of the original edition with the dust jacket and the whole thing is just wonderful it's my favorite book uh <laughs> both for the contents and and the thing so thank you george steiner for uh, for 
for making all this possible. And and really, I mean, the basic point here is, you know, apart from my own perhaps idiosyncratic interest in this, uh, it's really, these are the, the sexiest books ever. And if, if ever there was a marketing campaign to promote the right wing, <laughs> it was these books. I mean, they're, they're just wonderful. This, this is the book series that every, you know, underground right-wing publisher has dreamed of publishing. And George yeah, Steiner, yeah. he was just obsessed with the Holocaust. And, you know, every book has a statement on the back. 70 million died through revolution and famine in Europe and Russia between 1914 and 1945. Well, of course, he thinks because of fascists, right? right. Not that the communists or the capitalists had anything to do with any of those deaths. Yeah. Well, because he's obsessed with with, uh, with that, he, he thinks we need to understand where this comes from. How did how did these rational people become crazy? Right. <laughs> well, there's a there's a publishing house. Uh, there's a publishing house called Fertig that had it was a Jewish-owned publisher based in New York, the, uh, Howard Fertig. That, that did a similar thing. Published books by George Moss, for instance. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Published, uh, published Ernst Jünger, uh, <laughs> yes. and uh, trying to trying to get to the roots of this uh, fascinating, horrible thing. I have a small, I probably have one shelf's worth of Fertig books. I I have them all in boxes because I, I sort of, you know, been there, done that, got the message, hung up the phone, right? But I have all these George Moss books. I still have the uh, the Jünger books around. But yeah, it's 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 very interesting that Steiner and Fertig provided a lot of food for thought for actual rightists. You know, you know, of course, what they wanted to do is make sure that this never happened again. I hope this teaches you a lesson. This is a cautionary tale, right? Let this be a lesson to you all. But it's sort of like Tallulah Bankhead. Uh, Tallulah Bankhead. She got. She was hospitalized with. Uh, like multiple venereal diseases or something <laughs> like that. And uh, I think she had a hysterectomy or something like that. And the doctor came in, uh, you know, and to, you know, looked in on her after she'd come out from under the anesthesia or whatever and looked, looked upon her sternly, perhaps. And her comment was, I hope you don't think this has taught me a lesson. <laughs> Uh, she was incorrigible, and and I guess so. So are a lot of so are a lot of the goyim, incorrigible goyim, who uh, who read all these cautionary tales and think, well, this isn't entirely objectionable. There, yeah, well, there's they, some some things here that might actually yeah, well, be true. Yeah, well, they they've learned their lesson now. I think now they they just cancel everything, so you know nobody can read anything anymore because they, they figured that out. It's just like you can't let them read it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like only someday for some reason yeah they, they did this. It was like the Protestants letting people read the Bible. It's like right. ah, yeah it's a mistake. <laughs> but you can't get that genie back in the bottle. You can't cancel the Bible yet. And damn internet it's it's letting people buy these books on the secondary market. It's terrible. Yeah, yeah. Download the pirate PDF files, and oh my goodness, the stuff is out yeah. there. They shut it down. The goyim, no. Yeah. Well, I have a couple questions here. Barton Sardikar has donated an ice cream. Board Troll, an ice cream. 
Black Pigeon Pilled has donated a Libri token. Any clue as to when Bound's official, I guess he means to say biography, will be written and who the authors will likely be? I heard rumors uh, it may be the ever affable Ed Dutton. Okay, well, that's a good question. Uh, years ago, Alex Kurtigich said that he was going to write a Bowden biography, and he actually got a hold of a lot of Bowden documents and memorabilia and stuff like that from Michael Woodbridge, who's, Mike, uh, who's Jonathan's heir and uh, executor. And he's had more than a decade now or to, to actually do a biography. I don't believe he's going to do a biography. He interviewed a lot of people, interviewed me, gathered a lot of data, has a lot of highly collectible and interesting materials uh, stored away for whatever ultimate purposes. But I don't think he's going to produce a book. Uh, I remember years ago when he was writing for Countercurrents early on, he was constantly pitching ideas for big books, uh, a novel set in Antarctica, a book about post-colonialism, uh, things like that, a book about Bowden. And he would do this to uh, whip up uh, enthusiasm, hoping that you know he could get people to put money into these projects. And I think he was very genu genuinely enthusiastic about this Bowden thing, but I think at a certain point he realized that this is going to be a labor of love it's not going to be a cash cow. And I think that, and then at a certain point, he basically just tried to exit the scene. He wrote to me, I think this was in 2015. I, I recall it because I was living in New York at the time. So it was 2014 or 2015. Maybe 2014. 2016. Okay. Yeah, he... He asked to, he, he, he wrote this bouncy little email saying that uh, he would like me to delete all of his writings at Countercurrents and, uh, and let, me, let, let him know when I had uh, done this. And I wrote this back and I said, well, Alex, I'm not going to delete all this stuff. I paid for it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the internet's forever anyway. And so I, I don't know what he was trying to do. He didn't want to explain he got very, very annoyed because we uh, we ran a few somewhat critical reviews of his editions of Bowden, uh, some of them penned by James O'Meara here. And so anyway, I think that he's basically just given up on Bowden. He stopped publishing unpublished Bowden manuscripts, and he seems to have sort of exited our scene. So I have tried to encourage a new biography project uh, because it's very important that the materials of, that survive about Jonathan be preserved, uh, that the memories that exist be preserved. So I created the Bowden archive site and I'd like to gather together as much material on him as possible for a biographer. I had a meeting with Dutton and he is interested in this and he has done a bunch of research apparently but he's very, very busy, and I'm not sure when he can actually do it. I could write a biography about, but I've got so many other projects on my plate now. What I think I'm going to do, though, is 
begin to seriously interview people who do Jonathan, basically go over all the ground that was covered by Kurtigic before with interviews, you know, reaching out to friends of Jonathan, uh, stuff like that, and to getting, getting as much on record as possible, and then just putting it up on the Bowden Archive site. And maybe in five years or something, if Dutton hasn't written a biography, I'll write the biography. But in the meantime, I just think it's important to have the archive there to gather and preserve as much material as possible because, you know, people are getting old, people are dying. Uh, Jonathan proves to us that you've got to be mindful of these things. He was not even 50 when he died. Here today, gone tomorrow. And he's been gone for more than 10 years. So yeah, it's, it's something that's going to happen. There will be a biography someday. One of the things that's going to be revealed in the biography is that Jonathan lied all the time about his wife. People have already mentioned this in various places. He said he had a first class degree at Cambridge. That wasn't true. He did attend there for a while. He said that he had a, a wife and children. None of that was true. He was a bit of a fabulist. And you could say, well, you know, it's a dissident scene and he's creating a cover and, and uh, his international man of mystery and stuff like that. Well, he was operating under his own name. So he didn't really need to, um, to do that kind of stuff. And nobody, nobody except Jean-Jacques Rousseau tells lies about himself to make him look worse than he actually is. <laughs> and, uh, and Jonathan certainly told lies about himself to make him look better or better off, let's just say, more self-realized uh, than he actually was. And so there's going to be a lot of stuff in there that will be sort of sobering. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of stuff in there about his mental health breakdown that he had in 2011. And uh, he had a psychotic episode. I remember him contacting me saying that he had to get out of England. And I wrote to him and I said, okay, pack your grip, get your ticket. You can come stay here. I'm kind of glad that that didn't happen because nobody is really prepared to deal with somebody who's having a break with reality. And he had a break with reality. He got a paranoid episode. He was, I think, taken in, uh, uh, stalking the, because he was stalking the streets of, of his town, carrying a samurai sword. This is a funny story. When I first met him in 2009 in Atlanta, I bought a painting from him. I bought two paintings from him. One of them was his painting, Hitler and Laney. And the other was a painting that I commissioned called Savitri Diva, Savitri Diva. And it's a Savitri Devi thing, sort of in a, in a um, cartoonist style. And uh, so he brought these on the airplane in a large cardboard, long cardboard box labeled on the outside, Samurai Sword Made in Taiwan. And it was very funny. He, sh he showed up and he he had this this samurai sword box and he was gesturing with it and i and i just thought oh, this must have gone over so well going through security you know 
carrying the samurai sword box and putting it on the conveyor to go through the, uh, the scanner. But anyway, um, apparently he actually did have a samurai sword uh, uh, and he was stalking the streets in a paranoid uh, state uh, with this sword because he thought people were out to get him. So he, he had a mental breakdown near the end of his life. He put, you know, he, he got help and, uh, you know, started writing and reading and, and uh, speaking and traveling again, but probably was a side effect of the medicine that they put him on that killed him. Uh, he had a heart attack at the age of 49. And uh, I had some pictures of him in my living room in San Francisco. Uh, and there are some other pictures taken that I haven't made public during the, the retreat that we were at. And he, his face was very florid, but in some of these pictures, his hands are just deathly white. And those, I'm told, are signs of issues with circulation. And they could have been brought on by the medications that he was on. And he was very meek about following doctor's orders, apparently. There are many you know, fire-breathing radicals who are meek as kittens when a doctor tells them to do something. And apparently Jonathan was was a good boy about taking his medicine and it could have killed him, sadly. It'll be an interesting, interesting biography when it's written. I don't know who, who will write it. Um, but yeah, he, he was not an unproblematical character. There were a lot of little white lies that were, they're, they're, they're sort of venal lies. There were ways of burnishing his uh, image amongst people. And uh, when, when you know that, there, you know, you can sort of see elements of, you know, phoniness in some of his writing, too. Anyway, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, the, uh, I'm reading now a, a biography of uh, Austin uh, Osmond Spare. Uh-huh. And uh, he, uh, one of the problems uh, that the uh, biographer notes is that it's difficult to, to write a biography of Spare because so much of his, uh, he spent so much time mythologizing himself. Right. Uh, he's, uh, I'm looking at a passage here. Uh, uh, by his own admission, an inability to separate fantasy from reality. Spare had a lifelong tendency to confabulation and self-pathologizing, beginning with the date of his birth, which he claimed was not 30th December, but the more liminal Janus face moment of midnight December 31st. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he, he invented this story, which I've heard from other people as if it was, you know, truth uh, that he had... Uh, from his mid-teens, uh, for for ten or twenty years, he had an ongoing affair with a, an eighty-year-old woman who was a witch. Uh, <laughs> but 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 the interesting thing is that they've they've traced down you know, the name by name and age and proximity to his house and so on who that woman was, and and she was just a kindly old uh, Christian woman. <laughs> yeah. So and so on. So I, I mean, I bring this up because uh, because I, I've noted in in some of Bowden's uh, stuff the uh, he uh, he does uh, talk about uh, the importance of the imagination and the importance of uh, of uh, dreams and uh, what he calls strengthening dreams, which is interesting because that's a Colin Wilson uh, 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 line about uh, his essay, in his essay on uh, Lovecraft, the strength dream. Mm -hmm. uh, 
though, though Bowden doesn't uh, doesn't allude to Colin Wilson in that context, but he talks about strengthening dreams, and that's the purpose mm -hmm. of art is to yeah. take what you, what's in dreams and and strengthen it by giving it a three dimensional form. He says there's 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 something in the the volume at hand, the culture thug, that may be a touch of Bowden confabulating. Uh, he was an artist, and the stories that he told about his life were somewhat fictional as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, his biography was a work of art too. Anyway, he talks about a friend went to Texas. Oh yeah. And this is the and then then in another speech, he had gone to Texas. And uh, I, I wonder, is, what is it? Did he, uh, did did a friend go to Texas and bring back these stories? And then the next time he talked about it, he wrote himself in. It's very possible because as far as I know, his first visit to the United States was in 2009 when he came to Atlanta. And I don't think he went to Texas on that trip. He went to Atlanta and then he went to Key West, Florida. And then he came back to Atlanta and... Uh, those are the first two times I actually met with him were during that journey in 2009. And then the next time I met him was in February, in person was February of 2012, about a month before he died. So as far as I know, he may not ever have been to America before that trip. And I don't think he ever went to Texas, but he writes himself into somebody else's recollections. That's, that's a hypothesis at least. Well, that's, that's classic biographer material, you know, trying to, to sort out. What, yeah. Uh, you know, this this biographer does much the same thing. You know, he'll, he'll tell a, a spare story and then he'll try to find some someone else corroborating it and discover that uh, this, this and that details have been exchanged and and, and so on. It's very uh, it's very Hunter Thompson esque. You know, I mean, it's it's he wasn't he wasn't in Texas and nobody actually said that, but it it gets at the truth of things. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's, a true, exactly. it's a true anecdote. It should have been true. It, it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, in this in this case, it's, it's supposedly he has a, a Texan saying, uh, "Welcome to uh, the world." You know. Yeah, yeah. And so on, so yeah, he's he's trying he's trying to convey that uh, that truth about Americans, but by mm -hmm. making a story about a, a fictional American. And sometimes it's him, and sometimes it's a friend of his, and so on. So the yeah. details don't matter. Yeah, <laughs> he, yeah. Thanks. So we have a couple more donations. Cockney Nutjob has donated four diamonds. Thank you. And we also got a livery from John Selmer. Repatriate the Elgin marbles to the Ivory Coast. Okay. Uh, and uh, he also writes in with another Libri token. 50 years ago, Sandoz did a series of great art portfolios called Psychopathology and Pictorial Expression to publicize antipsychotic medication. A psychopathology and political expression series would be plenty. It's very interesting you bring that up because, of course, Jonathan was very interested in outsider art, which was also the art of the insane. And apparently his friend, Bill Hopkins, was something of a outsider art aficionado. Did uh, I say what? Yeah. Do you want to say something about that? Mark, you yeah, well, you know, I, you know, Jonathan Bowden is sort of my nexus, uh, posthumous nexus to, to countercurrents. Um, we had friends in common. We never ran into each other. Uh, we both uh, knew Tony Hancock, uh, who introduced me to uh, Bill Hopkins. And uh, 
Bill and I had sort of a we had sort of a checkered relationship. When I was only in London for a, a month or two, you know, I I, I saw a lot of them, uh, and then I moved back for a longer time, and he didn't want to see me. And and then I was in and out a couple times a year, and we'd talk on the phone, and he'd invariably tell me that uh oh I'm I'm working I'm writing about outsider art, but he would never tell me where he was writing about outsider art. Uh, either he wrote under a pseudonym or it was just a cover story that he used. But he did a lot of stuff that he didn't talk about. He was he, uh, he, he was like the uh, original uh, sort of editor or uh, layout guy for Penthouse Magazine when Bob Guccione started that in, uh, in London. And I think it was the mid-60s. He, he, he laid it out, pasted it up actually on his kitchen table or something. Uh, and this was while he was making a living selling uh, old artifacts at the uh, Portobello Market. He became an antique dealer when his, uh, when, his, when his writing career failed. Anyhow, I was looking around for Bill and Tony Hancock and other people and uh, found they were dead. Uh, and then I found that they were written about by, uh, uh, by Bowden. So I looked at Bowden and Bowden was dead too. And uh, somehow I, something linked me to countercurrents. So I think I sent an email to uh, That's right. Greg, at, supposedly in San Diego, I think the address said. And I heard back from him immediately. And Greg was practically in town then. This was back in 2014. So we, we got yeah. together for lunch. And uh, uh, a few days later, uh, we had a, uh, a cafe meet with Patrick and Colin. We saw the conformist in a new cut with uh, uh, a, link, a, a lengthier cut, and that was yeah. when that was, that was when Greg told us that he had heard that request from Alec, Alex Kurtagic that he wanted all his articles removed. That's how oh, I remember. okay. And, was and that was the and that was the occasion when you used the phrase "a nice white country." That's exactly we, what I did. We were walking. We left the cafe or walking up the street. Well, what can we do? What can we get? Or maybe I didn't say it when we were walking up the street. We were, I said, said why can't cafe. we just have a nice white country? And I that mm -hmm. that fell into place, and hence truth, justice, and a nice white country came exactly. Up yes. Yeah. Well, that 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 is so interesting. And uh, Jonathan, of course, was an artist, and he did kind of outsider art, and he did have his brush with insanity, so it could be the art of the insane as well. I actually like his artwork, uh, but I like some modernist art. And the issue for me is, I think he correctly identifies what makes modernist art good or bad, and that's vitalism. He was a uh, cultural vitalist and artistic vitalist. Uh, his art has a great deal of energy and vitality to it. It, it is not what I would call decadent. And uh, I, I think that he's just dead right about that particular issue. Uh, so we should wrap up. Uh, I just want to make sure we don't miss any more questions and comments. Let me just uh, quickly. Okay. Uh, John writes in again. Uh, was there a Bowden connection to Stuart Holroyd? Marcus? Yes. Yes. I can. Just a moment. Yes. I can answer that. Uh, Bill Hopkins. Colin Wilson and Stuart Holroyd, three angry young men, had a little uh, 
club. They were going to start the Spartacan movement back around 1957. And uh, this got publicized as being uh, quasi-fascist. And that's one of the things that killed Bill Hopkins' novel, novel writing career. And there was a famous fight about it at the Royal Court Theater in Sloan Square. And uh, let's see, uh, they, I think they shared a house. They shared a house in Notting Hill where they got free rent from this uh, Jewish landlord who was sort of their patron. His name was Peter Rockman, the slumlord of Notting Hill, but he was a great patron of the arts. He was also a good friend of Stephen Ward and uh, knew Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davies a few years later. So uh, Bill was then part of that circle too, and Stuart Holroyd and, uh, and Colin Wilson. Very incestuous bunch. Interesting. And one person that Jonathan really wanted to imitate in some ways was Colin Wilson, I believe. He wrote all these little books early on that you could sort of see. And first of all, they make use of Wilson's ideas, but you had this image of him as somebody who was consciously trying to be not just an author, but a prolific author like Colin Wilson, just firing these tracks out. I'd, I'd like to know more about Pop his ad- Yeah, I'd like to know more about whether he knew Colin Wilson or not. That would be very interesting. He certainly must have known of him through Bill Hopkins, and maybe he actually met him. Sadly, Colin Wilson is dead, so we can't ask him. Maybe there's some evidence mm-hmm. amongst the Wilsonites or Wilson's family that could be brought to life. It's worth making a note of. I want to see if there's a question over here at Entropy. Yes, there is. ABC writes in with 10 US dollars. Thank you very much. Non-white racial solidarity and its weaponization against whites, woke ideology, globalism, egalitarianism, and anti-meritocracy. That's internationalist communism of the Trotskyan type at great odds with national communism that existed behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, that's what we see in the West, isn't it? Yeah, I, I would agree. Trotsky, in many ways, uh, provided the the template for merging the left with the ambitions of the, well, the rising tide of color, uh, to, to put it frankly. And that, that was something that was very much formulated by, uh, by him. Um, and remember, he did die in Mexico. So he was there in the third world at the end. So anyway, that, that's a good point. Thank you very much. We are running out of time. What I'd like to do is just go around the panel one more time, just for a couple last words about the cultured thug. And then I want to encourage you all to tune in for the next book club. So James, do you have a few last words about the cultured thug? And then how do people follow you and your work? I don't have any particular words about, about The Cultured Thug. It's a fine book and uh, everyone should buy it. They can get it from Countercurrents on the website. And that is also where uh, you can uh, get uh, my stuff uh, to an extent. Um, and uh, there's a, a nice gentleman who put together a, a, a page on his website collecting uh, 
things I had published mostly at Countercurrents on uh, uh, Neville, Neville Goddard, the, uh, the great mystic. Uh, it's uh, coolwisdom.com. Uh, you can go to that website and uh, see a nice little selection of my articles there. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's about it. Um, it's a fine book, and everyone should uh, should get a copy. It's uh, uh, not very long. Uh, it's uh, substantial enough, uh, and uh, you can read it in a couple of days. And uh, it will. Uh, I don't think there's probably anybody who knows everything that's in this book. I mean, most people know about Shakespeare, I suppose. Yeah. People have heard of Orwell. Uh, Elgar might be new. Uh, I guess Margot hasn't heard the Second Symphony of Elgar, so now she's going to do that. Uh, it's working exactly according to plan. Exactly. We're, all getting, we're all getting a little more cultured and a little more courageous at the same time by reading yeah, this. Yeah, Robinson Jeffers is probably new to some people uh, and, uh, and all that. So it's an excellent uh, guide to, uh, uh, as uh, one of our people would say, a guide to culture. Uh, a guide so, to culture, yes, exactly. Wonderful. Another, another member of the old weird America, Ezra Pound. Yes, exactly. Catherine. Do you have some final thoughts about this book and how do we follow your work? Well, I think it's a good encapsulation of, of countercurrents itself because it, it has a little bit of everything for everybody. Um, just like, as we said, Shakespeare, all of his plays, the humor was designed to appeal to all different kinds of people. Um, Nosferatu, you know, I, I actually did kind of enjoy that essay. I know it was sort of weird and I hadn't seen the whole thing, but, um, you know, it would, you know, I did sort of enjoy it, but um, it's a good introduction to a lot of the sorts of things that Countercurrents is trying to do. And he's an eclectic, I think, uh, thinker and writer, but I think Countercurrents is, you know, got it, got its hands in a lot of different things and a lot of different authors with a lot of different specialities. And Bowden has, you know, interests in all of these, these sorts of areas. So I would recommend it. And uh, follow my work at Countercurrents. Thank you so much. Marga, some last thoughts about this book and how do we follow your work? Well, you can, you can follow me uh, at Countercurrents. Uh, I also have, a, uh, I have a, a, a Twitter account that is uh, M Metroland, but I don't use it much. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> that that would be very hit or, hit or miss. Uh, I do have uh, other other bylines, uh, both uh, underground and above ground, normie, but I uh, I, I cannot uh, reveal them in this demimondane uh, medium. Yeah, well, you don't want to dox yourself. Wonderful, wonderful, folks. Next week we are going to be back with normal episode of Counterparts Radio. And stay tuned. I have several really good people that I'm trying to get on the show. And also, next month, basically in three weeks' time, on February 3rd, I'm going to be convening another session of this show. And we're going to be talking about one of my own books, The Trial of Socrates, and uh, Mark Gullick will be joining us. Uh, he wrote a review of that. He is a philosophy PhD, a fellow PhD. And Mike Maxwell of Imperium Press is going to be joining us as well. And I might try and get one other person on 
to talk about Socrates. Uh, maybe there's some volunteers. And uh, so we will continue this book club. Uh, also, uh, today is the last day of a sale that we're running. Uh, you can get the books for the first four book club sessions for 15% off uh, at Countercurrents. The Cultured Thug, The Trial of Socrates, F. Roger Devlin's Sexual Utopian Power, which we will be, we'll, we will be doing March 2nd. And then I have another book. It's Vanity. Hey, it's when I publish my own works, it becomes a vanish, vanity publishing operation, right? April 6th, we're going to be doing my new collection of essays against imperialism. I haven't found the proper cast for that, the proper panel for that yet. Roger Devlin will be on himself to talk about sexual utopia and power, though. And I highly recommend that, that you join us for that. So take advantage of the sale uh, while uh, it's still going on. Just uh, put the things in your cart and put the, the code in, which is in the, uh, the most recent post about the, uh, the, the stream. And you'll get 15% off and you'll have plenty of time to prepare for the trial of Socrates, sexual utopian power and against imperialism. So I hope this becomes a, not just a tradition, but a very successful tradition uh, at Countercurrents. I, I like the Patriotic Alternative Book Club and I've been invited on that a few times and I want to do the Countercurrents Book Club. Uh, I'm imitating that model. So folks, uh, thank you so much uh, for tuning in and thank you panelists. Uh, thank you donors. Thank you moderator. Uh, and we will be back next week with another episode of Counterpoints Radio. Bye.